Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever, and rich, with a comfortable home and happy disposition, seemed to unite some of the best blessings of existence and had lived nearly 21 years in the world with very little to distress or vex her. What's up? <laughs> Welcome to Period Peace. This podcast is coming to you live from the coronavirus quarantine. I'm Hannah, coming at you from Westwood, California in my bedroom. I'm Gemma, literally three streets away from Hannah, also in my living room. I'm Dina. I'm in the Bay Area, so I'm a little farther away in my bedroom, alone, missing you guys and civilization. (laughs) Through the power of codependency and also internet video recording technology, we are starting a podcast. And today, per the quote that uh, Gemma read, we're going to talk about Jane Austen's Emma. So yeah, Emma has lived nearly 21 years in the world with very little to distress or vex her. Hannah, you just turned 22 four days ago. Anything uh, anything ve- vexing you lately? Yeah, I would say this quarantine is pretty vexing. I really want to go outside. I really want to see my friends and not sit in my bed. But here we are. Yeah, same thing as what Hannah said. I think just I've been realizing recently how much I've been taking things for granted, I think, like seeing my friends, um, like my whole life in college, the fact that like I had my last college class and I didn't even know it, you know, Uh, it's just been, I guess it's not vexing me. It's just a lot of learning moments, I think, in these past couple weeks. Um, And I just want to get out of the house and meet people again. That would be great. What about you, Gemma? Yeah, it's distressing to be alive in this day and age it's distressing for me to just like realize this is how the end of my college career is going to play out and to be like away from family and so I guess it might be helpful for us to sort of talk about what are we doing here why are we doing this who are we (laughs) why do we have any business telling you how we feel about (laughs) this 19th century novel (laughs) So I'm going to just start with a story, which Hannah knows because she was with me. Before we went into shelter in place, we did one of our very last like in-person things for work. And after that, we went to the library. And I said, I want to check out a bunch of books to read for this time period. But I also want to check out something comforting and familiar that has a happy ending. And so I checked out Pride and Prejudice. Because in my head, when I think of like comforting like novels and books, like Pride and Prejudice is the first one of the first that like comes to mind. Just like Jane Austen in general has always been very comforting. I know you guys are on the same page with that, and so I'm just wondering like why do we take comfort in these works from a potentially sexist and racist, very dated genre that seems to have like no import for our current moment? whatsoever you know why do people like period dramas anyways is it just escapism or for the like aesthetic of the time period and I wanted to know what your guys' thoughts on that was yeah we could certainly really divulge into why the three of us I think we're drawn to period dramas for similar but also different reasons I think each of us has like a particular affinity for the genre maybe because we like to study history we like to kind of give context to the stories and classic 
plots and very twisty, turny story arcs that uh, thrill us, but also educate us on what life was like at a particular point in time. So to some extent, I think it like it does teach us that these are tales as old as time and the way that humans relate and react to one another. So I think that that's a fun element of it. But it's also almost like a fantasy at times. It, it's a foreign world that is being relayed to us by an author who is long dead. So it's hard in that sense to relate to something. So it becomes a little bit more of a fantasy. Yeah, I think for me, um, kind of what Hannah was touching upon, that fantasy and escape, kind of being able to see how life was in a time, because I do think there is kind of like this enthralling aspect of looking at the past and seeing, you know, how things have changed from then. And I think there's also a kind of like idealization. Obviously, there are issues and like problems within the past, like you were mentioning, like racism and sexism. But there's also kind of, I think, an idealism of how life was back then. And we can kind of see it through. I think that's why period dramas are kind of like enthralling to us as well. Um, And I know for me, being able to kind of like see also how like many things seem to parallel um, our lives now with how they were back then in terms of kind of how humanity like the things at core like history repeats itself and I think you can you can definitely see these parallels in our lives with like kind of like the struggles that they were going through back then so I think there is both like an escapism a fantasy world with it but also ways that we can like view ourselves in our own lives um in parallel to these characters what about you Gemma yeah I mean as the English major in me says there I do think there is like a practical point in reading um old books by dead people, dead usually white people. And I think that there are certain truths that we can get from literature that are applicable to how we can live life like right now. When I think about like a Jane Austen novel, it challenges me to see the world in like a different way and to also like imagine that a happy ending can be possible because I think right now when we look at the world, it doesn't seem at all like it could happen. But if we don't have that hope or that idea of like, you know, the future could be good and we could make it good, um, then we're never really going to get anywhere. So why Emma today? There are many 19th century novels that we could have picked and we mentioned a couple others like Pride and Prejudice. But let's talk about Emma. (laughs) Why have we selected this title? Well, I think first we might need to do a little bit of a recap for people who might not be familiar with the text. So to clarify, I've read Emma. I've seen a million adaptations of Emma. I love the book and I love Jane Austen. I (laughs) tried to read Emma and I think I tried to read it when I was too young maybe to grasp and like really challenge myself with the density of the writing and I think this I mean I notice in myself a difficulty to understand language when the writer was of an older era sometimes it just takes a lot more mental energy so I think I started reading it while I was too young to maybe grasp all of it so I have yet to finish it but I've seen two adaptations of Emma so 
Therefore, I considered myself half qualified to be here and participate in this discussion. <laughs> I don't think I'm really qualified at all. I'm an English major like Gemma, but I actually have not read Emma, and I didn't really know anything about it going in, and so I watched the film for the first time with these two lovely ladies yesterday, and that was kind of my first introduction to Emma in terms of like its plot and just Emma as a whole. Dina, as the like Emma neophyte of us, um, what would be your brief, I guess, like summary from what you saw last night oh no why me it's a challenge what in like layman's layman's terms what has what has occurred in this film we're specifically referring to the 2020 autumn to wild adaptation um just to clarify because there have been numerous adaptations of course um but Gemma and I had the privilege of seeing the 2020 adaptation pre-quarantine and um, witnessed Autumn to Wild in the flesh, giving a little bit of a director's talk afterwards. But anyway, I digress. Dina is now going to give us a quick five-second summary of the film. Okay, well, there's Emma, and she's, like, a wealthy, privileged, I guess, um, woman, uh, and her governess marries, and so she tries to find another, I don't know if this is actually said in the movie, but, like, she tries to find another, like, female companion, and she finds Harriet, uh, Harriet Smith, I believe, um, and no one knows Harriet Smith's kind of, like, who her parents are, um, and so Emma supposes, or assumes that she's from kind of like this high noble uh, gentleman class um, and takes her in under her uh, ward um, and she's basically like a matchmaker and uh, she wants to uh, match Harriet with um, their two guys right is it Mr. Elton at first and then Mr. Churchill am I am I yeah hey okay <laughs> um and so but there's another guy, Mr. Martin, who's, like, a tenant farmer for Mr. Knightley, and he asks Harriet's, for Harriet's hand in marriage, uh, but Emma kind of, like, sways, uh, Harriet to not marry him, uh, and says that, like, oh, she's worthy of, like, she shouldn't be doubting this, like, she's worthy of, like, so much more, um, and then she tries to set like, uh, Emma up with, uh, Mr. Elton, but Mr. Elton actually wants, um, Emma, but Emma rejects him in the carriage. Is this correct so far, or am I, like, going off base? Wow, okay. Uh, and then, um, Mr. Elton, basically, there's, like, a ball, and he kind of, uh, dismisses Harry and Harriet's really sad and then Mr. Fairfax Mr. Knightley sorry uh comes You're doing in great. and kind of like uh is a gentleman and asks Harriet for a dance and unknowing to Emma um Harriet starts falling for Mr. Knightley but she mistakenly thinks that uh <laughs> that Harriet has fallen in love with Frank Churchill um, and can you guys go off based on that? Um, Frank Churchill is the mysterious, like, stepson of Emma's old governess. And she kind of has, like, a crush on him. But Emma also doesn't want to marry anyone, too. But then Frank Churchill is secretly engaged to Jane Fairfax, who's this girl from, like, a lower class, like, setting. 
And then once Frank Churchill's aunt dies and gives him a lot of money, he comes of like, you know, into his inheritance and he marries Jane Fairfax. And when this like all comes out, Emma's like, oh no, like uh, I'm kind of bummed, but I guess Harriet must be super bummed because Harriet's obviously in love with him. And so she like goes to tell Har Harriet like the bad news, but then Harriet was like, what? I was never in love with Frank Churchill. I was totally like hot for Mr. Knightley. And Emma's like, what? No, like how can you be hot for Mr. Knightley? Because, because, because I'm in love with Mr. Knightley. And then it turns out Mr. Knightley's in love with Emma too. And then Emma fixes things so that like, Harriet and Robert Martin are now together and happy and she and Mr. Knightley are together and happy and Mr. Knightley moves into her house with her dad. Yeah, and then everyone is happy. That, I would say that's pretty spot on. Um, in terms of the way that the film portrays it, at least, last night after watching for the second time, Gemma made the point that this adaptation is actually pretty loyal to the book. Um, it does condense some scenes, allegedly, um, but I think one of the strengths of it is that it is able to stay loyal to the book, but also put on some unique Autumn to Wild 21st century spins. So you've got like a very Wes Anderson-esque color scheme. You've got a lot of color, um, bright yellows, bright pinks. Like some of the costuming was a little bit like almost to the ridiculous. And if anyone's seen The Favorite... Um, it kind of reminded me of that in terms of like, you know, we're, we are romanticizing to some extent, but there is that element of satire as well. Being a person who's obsessed with films and also actors, I think the choice of actors for a lot of these roles really is one of the strengths of this film. I think it gives it a lot, like as being able to recognize some of these actors for their previous roles was really fun for me, and I think this is a really strong cast. So you have Anya Taylor-Joy in the protagonist role of Emma. If anybody has seen Peaky Blinders, you might recognize her from Peaky Blinders. Um, Bill Nighy, of course, is Mr. Woodhouse. Everybody knows Bill Nighy. He's a household favorite. Who else? Josh O'Connor, of course, as Mr. Elton. If you have seen The Crown, you know who Josh O'Connor is. He is the coronavirus-positive Prince Charles. <laughs> we have the marvelous Johnny Flynn as Mr. Knightley. He is most known for his music career, which I would recommend anyone to check out. Great musician. But also for a minor role in <laughs> Netflix Originals Lovesick, <laughs> which I binge-watched. Yes, it's a, yeah, he's the main role, but it's a very minor TV show. But I binge-watched all of it during the quarantine. Uh, Mia Goth as Harriet Smith. Um, people might recognize her from a couple of smaller Indian movies. Not anything huge, but she's really great. Connor Swindles and Tanya Reynolds from Sex Education are Robert Martin and Mrs. Elton, respectively. And lastly, as Frank Churchill, we have Callum Turner, a.k.a. Theseus Scamander from Fantastic Beasts number 2. <laughs> And that's that on that. He probably has had other roles too, but that's the one I remember him the most from. Oh my gosh, how could I forget Miranda Hart as Miss Bates? Miranda Hart, the queen of comedy. She is the hilarious Miss Bates in this film. And I think she has a lot of flux in the way that she controls the comedic timing 
of a lot of really important scenes. So really honorable mention goes out to her. One thing we noticed when we were looking kind of just at the adaptations that have come out from like Clueless to the Gwyneth Paltrow Emma to the Kate Beckinsale Emma to the 2009 BBC miniseries Emma. This one, the 2020 version, was the only one since Clueless that was both written and directed by a woman. And I was wondering for you guys how, I guess you think that might have affected the way the story was told? Gemma has brought this point up before, but... One of the things that Autumn DeWilde does really well is her focus on female friendship and her willingness to show Emma and her shortcomings. Emma does Emma does get romanticized to some extent. She is the protagonist. It is a romantic era film and story. But at the same time, she's very flawed. And I think like she gets portrayed in a way that is very... Cher-esque from Clueless like she is top dog and she knows it she's kind of unapologetic about being the most popular girl in Highbury essentially but you you see her flaws in that as well and I think it's a very honest depiction of that I would say the most for me the most impactful element of this being an autumn to wild adaptation is not necessarily the fact that she's a woman but more so, you know, she's fresh and new. She's edgy. She's like one of the edgiest directors I think I've ever heard speak. She's real. She's like whip smart. She's so funny. And I think like she's she's raw and real. So she really was able to put like a lot of like really quick comedic moments where if you're not paying attention enough, like you will miss them. But also really outwardly expressive comedic moments, which some of these amazing actors do a really good job of portraying. So that freshness, that like rough edge to it, I think really brings life to something that could otherwise be perceived as like a very tired genre. Yeah, I think one thing I noticed is just how almost like human the film is. And a lot of attention is just called to like the human body. Like what we meet Mr. Knightley, two seconds later, he's like buck naked. Or Emma, um, she has to pick up her petticoats to warm her to like warm herself by the fire or even the warm her bare ass (laughs) yeah that is true or even um in that climactic scene when they're having this like love confession she gets a nosebleed and that's possibly like the worst most unimaginable but also like totally realistic thing that could happen um during what's supposed to be this intensely romantic moment and i think autumn dewald's like awareness that she brings to the film that these characters are from this almost like fantasy-like genre, but they're also so human. Um, and I think a lot of Emma's arc is about recognizing like her humanity and recognizing the humanity of other people too, and that she can't just treat them as like dolls that she's playing with. So back in the early 19th century when Jane Austen was writing this book, she said of Emma, I am going to take a heroine whom no one but myself will much like. And I think kind of like the question I want to pose to you guys is, is Emma likable or does she need to be likable? I think it's more realistic that we don't like her at first. Like we watch her have and live with so much privilege and like it's almost makes it more humorous in a way to see her live in such a bubble of privilege 
and her problems are so trivial. So I think we either get mad, but we don't get disaffected. Like we get mad or we just laugh at her because like we think what she's stressing over is just so silly. So I think it's it's an interesting way to like keep us hooked. We're still hooked on like who she's interacting with and what problem she's inventing her for herself to solve. But at the same time, like we don't we don't want to see her fail, but we want to see her learn her lesson, which is why when it finally comes in the end, it's such a triumphant moment for the audience too because we're just like, "Haha, she has to like, you know, and I think like Autumn DeWild does a really good job of this, but she has to recover. She has to go apologize in a million different ways until she's finally able to be redeemed and able to accept her happy ending. She doesn't earn her happy ending until she has to like, you know, backtrack and make up for the pain that she's caused other people. I think it started off as, like, I think there are moments where she's not likable, but in the end, she kind of redeems herself and becomes likable. And I think by becoming likable and by kind of redeeming herself, it's a way of making other people kind of connect with her and kind of, I think it's also like a learning lesson for other people and they kind of experience it through her flaws. Um, and then when she comes to her self-realization and she kind of like fixes everything at the end, it's kind of like that it, it creates that happy ending. So I don't think that she's likable throughout it, but I definitely think it ends with her as this likable character but I think that's kind of part of her character arch as well and it helps kind of like bring in those lessons about kind of like humility um and I think we were talking about this yesterday but this idea of control and like uh maybe like we're not in control and we have to kind of accept that um so for me I think it was kind of necessary at least in telling her story no I think that's super valid and I think the reason a lot of maybe like viewers or even readers of the original novel might feel off put by Emma at first is because I think we kind of see some of our worst qualities in her. Like I know that I do. Like I see her trying to be a control freak and like maneuver the people around her. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's me. I don't want to look at this. It's terrible. But the only way we can ever really get growth and maturity and resolution is by like confronting those like ugly out of control parts of ourself and that's something that requires like a lot of humility and a lot of like grace and I think that's also something we're not really in short supply of in our like current cultural moment either it brings up I guess also the issue of privilege itself because you know we're watching Emma live this incredibly privileged lifestyle and have little to no empathy or understanding for the situations of other people around her who she views as either like for Harriet a pawn in her game but more so just like a playing piece something that she can put down and come back to after a while uh with Miss Bates who is just someone whose position and standing is almost laughable to Emma and therefore she it's a source of amusement to watch this woman live her ridiculous life um but also the servants like they live in this household they witness the drama they witness very angry and very romantic moments there's a scene where Mr. Knightley is just completely dressing Emma down like and showing her how horrible she's been and you still you see the horse 
like the driver still there in the carriage like kind of (laughs) watching it awkwardly but then like Emma yells like no drive on and like all of a sudden he like jolts back to action and like drives the carriage off but he he was there witnessing that entire interaction it's interesting to think about how like even the richest people who maybe have the most servants have less privacy than someone like Miss Bates who didn't have any servants noticeable in her household she might have had some but they weren't visible in those scenes so I find that very interesting as well because perhaps we view or assume that privacy is one of the biggest privileges that's interesting so you're saying that even though she's of kind of like this wealthy upper obviously privileged class she what comes with it is kind of like a lack of privacy in a sense as compared to like some of the other people yeah I think yeah and what that does is it adds a little bit more of ridiculousness to it how hilarious is it that like these servants are running around you know doing like these weird dances almost in circles and spirals before they're able to actually serve Emma and Mr. Woodhouse their breakfast or move screens in front of the fire and I think it just adds like for the viewer like we're getting a lot of amusement out of watching how ridiculous Emma's life is as well because of how privileged it is like why did she need to get up at the crack of dawn at the opening scene to go and cut roses for the day and bring two servants with her it's just like we we see ourselves in her but to some extent we also like we get like get humor or satisfaction from how foolish she's being and the servants play a role in that how about mr knightley and emma this was the relationship i think we wanted to talk about just because i mean it is the the overarching love story of the film and of the book but at the same time like the ridiculousness i think mr knightley perceives himself to be very righteous very put together very proper but in his most vulnerable moments, he's just as ridiculous. Like, chasing after Emma after the ball, like, running after her carriage, just completely distraught and, you know, at her beck and call when she speaks to him. It's it's interesting to see how she can have that effect on him as someone who views himself not particularly highly, but, like, so organized and put together. To see him become destroyed, <laughs> to reference the soundtrack, <laughs> is is very amusing for the audience, too. I feel like this was one of the few adaptations that I've seen that have played Mr. Knightley the way that he's, I think, written in the books. Because I feel like most adaptations, and I think um, Paul Rudd and Clueless follows this route, as does like the Johnny Lee Miller portrayal in the BBC miniseries, where Knightley is just like, wise older brother and he's like he has everything together he's so much more mature than emma he like you know knows everything but i think in the book and i see in this movie like he's short-sighted he gets like you know tense whenever she talks about frank churchill because he's jealous but he doesn't want to admit that he's jealous and i think you see more of mr knightley's flaws in this version the flaws that he has in the book in the book and I think that's important because I think it's just that he's not this, like, you know, fantasy male romantic lead, you know, that all the women swoon over, but he's human and he's 
also caught up in this awkward endeavor of trying to love someone. The fact that he is a male, he is an older brother character, and he is, I think in the books, described to be older than her. But at the same time, she is, or he, to Emma, is an equal. And I think one of the interesting, like, comparisons you can make throughout the storyline in terms of like how these characters relate to Emma is like does she ever have an equal aside from Mr. Knightley her father I think she is in a caregiver role but at the same time he uh he controls her lifestyle because they live in the same house so there is an unequal relationship there and there's always an unequal relationship between parent and child um with Miss Taylor she had a governess and I think like to some extent Emma like looks up to her um and sees her as an older sister with Harriet it's obviously like completely reversed Harriet is almost entirely dependent on Emma and Emma knows that and kind of gets off from it like she is happy to be in that role Frank Churchill I think like Emma always feels a little bit uncomfortable around him because he is so high and mighty And I think he views himself as, like, above her to some extent. Miss Bates, obviously, Emma perceives as being below her. One of the interesting things that we could think about as well is Emma's relationship to Jane Fairfax. Because Jane is socioeconomically lower than Emma. And Emma, like, wants to view Jane as lower than her or inferior to her because of jealousy specifically because Jane is more poor more plain but she has all of these like fantastic characteristics like she is honest she is a good musician she is beautiful she's able to do her own hair um, because she doesn't have a servant to do it for her and so I think Emma has this like strong feeling of jealousy towards her and it might also be because she's getting attention from Frank Churchill um but to admit that jealousy would be to admit that Jane is somehow equal to or higher than Emma so as a defense mechanism she pushes Jane to a status below her own which I think like encourages her to be so openly rude to Miss Bates at the picnic she's insecure she wants to you know hold her own status which is very interesting and I think it plays into the immaturity of her character. I thought it was interesting to see in the piano scene in particular how Mr. Knightley kind of tears into Emma there if you remember that scene where he's all like yeah I, I forget like the exact wording maybe you guys remember it more but like you're nothing special. I don't know if it actually like impacted her there or if she actually took that to heart um but it was definitely interesting to see how he kind of put in a different perspective um, and kind of, at least from my view, that was like the first point where I viewed Jane as just as equal to Emma. I saw the first spark of jealousy really pick up there and like we see it kind of spoken about in retrospect as Emma saying like, oh, like why does everyone have to talk about Jane Fairfax? Like Jane Fairfax sneezes and all of a sudden the whole town must like read this letter about her falling ill and like you know I think that was more a dig at Miss Bates initially like why does Miss Bates have to obsess over every letter from her niece but then when they see each other for the first time and they're at a social setting and Jane Fairfax completely shows up Emma 
on the piano, she becomes jealous and like realizes that Jane is someone to contend with. And Knightley's like egging her on and teasing her and saying like, you know, Jane is rather extraordinary or whatever the word he chooses to use. But I think like it does, I feel like I saw something in the characterization of that that's like Emma realizes, oh God, like I, I don't want my position to change because this new threat has entered the room and entered my social sphere. Do we want to move into our segment, Hot or Not, Period Drama Men Edition? Yes! I was just so excited for this. This is the best thing ever. Because I think we talk a lot about, at the beginning, about, like, period dramas being fantasy for us. And I think, like, part of that is the beautiful men that they cast (laughs) into these roles. On Mr. Elton, you know, yes, I'm going to own up to this one because... Josh O'Connor is just a king. He's just a beautiful man. I'm getting evil, angry eyes from <laughs> my roommate. <laughs> no, all right, all right. So she's talking about Frank Churchill off off microphone right now. I, I'll just go ahead and say that all three of the men, Mr. Knightley, Mr. Elton, and Mr. Churchill, just beautiful, like beautiful casting, excellent, and that's like all of the actors, but also like the role they're playing. I think with Josh O'Connor as Mr. Elton, I hate Mr. Elton in his like, character. I hate his personality, but Josh O'Connor's comedic timing is just wonderful, and the way he plays the character with so much like facial acting and like interesting expressions and just goofiness in general, like really hooks me. So I would say. Josh O'Connor gets a thumbs up, hot. <laughs> Mr. Elton, thumbs down, not. <laughs> I mean, it's what I keep telling you. Like, I, right, like Josh O'Connor it has such a beautiful face, and he goes and he plays Prince Charles, and he plays Mr. Elton, and it's almost like, like a different person, which I think is a testament to his acting ability. Um, but yeah, yeah, that, that's a no on Mr. Elton, the character, for me as well. <laughs> We could move on to Frank Churchill, because I think I did start sweating a little bit <laughs> when he pulled up on his horse and did the little tip of the hat to Emma. And I think we part of that was, like, emphasized by Emma's, like, clear interest in Frank Churchill when she first meet him. It's like a little side-eye smirk. It's like, oh, who's this? Could be Frank Churchill. <laughs> could not be, because he's so secretive. And then it is confirmed that it was indeed Frank Churchill. I would say, again, this is a similar situation. Callum Turner, thumbs up, 100%. Uh, Frank Churchill, complete frat president asshole. So, thumbs down. (laughs) Dina, your thought? I don't know. I thought he was... I would actually give him the thumbs up. I also thought it was, like, kind of honorable that, like, he went after the woman of his, like, who he loved, you know? And I thought he was, like... I thought he was really attractive. I'm going to give a thumbs up just to spice it up. What do you think, Gemma? Interesting. I have some thoughts on that, but I'll let Gemma go first. Yeah, his character is a tricky one because I do think his romance with Jane is, there's a certain like purity to it, but he's also just like way too immature to, I guess, like execute it, you know, like perfectly. And I think the book is a little bit more forgiving 
towards him because the book does go more into Frank and Jane's like backstory than this than this particular movie. I'm gonna like take a cop out answer and I would say maybe like a thumbs up in five years time, you know, when he grows up. Yeah, I I would say like the secret romance between him and Jane, there is something like, you know, spicy and mysterious about it and the like secretive gifts and all of that. But the vibe I got by perceiving their respective, like his privilege and her complete lack of privilege, I found that to be kind of like a Jane Austen rendition of I like this girl, I think she's cute, but her status is below me, so I'm embarrassed to admit publicly that I'm in love with her. Like, he, there's a moment where Miss, uh, Miss Taylor, or Mrs. Weston, as she becomes at this point in the story, um, she says, when she's breaking the news to Emma, his grandma, or his aunt, basically would have cut him off from receiving the fortune if she had known that Frank was going to, you know go marry below his status to someone like Jane. Which is interesting, because I think, like, he, Frank did the savvy thing. He knew that would happen. So he decided to keep his love for her secret so he could maintain the fortune and maybe eventually provide for her and give her a life as, like, a noble woman of Highbury. But at the same time, where does that leave him morally that he wasn't ready to publicly admit his love for Jane? So I want to be mad at him for that, but I know he did the practical right thing. I think a point of comparison, I guess, would be Mr. Knightley um, going and deciding to like move out of the Abbey for Emma and her father and to be without his property. We could talk about Mr. Knightley. I mean, my vote is just hot on both fronts. I love Johnny Flynn and I love Mr. Knightley. So that's a double thumbs up for me. Just utter king. <laughs> All around. Go listen to Johnny Flynn's albums. They're great. She was not paid to do this. I was not paid to say any of these positive things, but I will say I am one of his biggest fans. <laughs> oh, great person. Maybe to close, we should move into our Truths Universally Acknowledged. So our Truths Universally Acknowledged are... Yeah, um, basically kind of the life lessons or takeaways that we're getting from these period dramas as a way to affirm that, you know, these texts, these films, they matter. They're not just um, for escapism, but they do have something that we can take for our own lives. So, Dina, what is your truth universally acknowledged? I'm just kind of thinking about the world right now and how kind of at a loss of, like, control we have right now especially like with the spread of like COVID and just needing to be quarantined and everything's kind of a fiasco and just I think watching the movie and seeing Emma try to control things like we're talking about control a lot I think in this podcast and like trying to be in control and I think I know in my life like I try to be in control of everything but at a certain point I think you come to realize like Emma that it's not really possible to be in control of everything and that you have to be you have to be humble and have humility. And we as human beings cannot, like, there, it's no way that, like, we can know everything and that we can solve everything. Um, and so for me, it was kind of like this humbling truth, like, just realizing, like, 
how we need to kind of like understand and like come to terms with our flaws and accept them. Um, so that's kind of my takeaway from Emma. What about you guys? I think the control element is definitely part of it for me, especially because with the moment that I most related to Emma was when she got a nosebleed, like at the end, like she's, she's being her, Mr. Knightley's love for her is being confessed and the world is coming down crashing around her and she's realizing all the mistakes she's making. And that touch, I think cinematically just like sent it for me. I was like, Oh my gosh, like I've been there. I've been in a moment where like everything is just falling apart. I'm stressed. And then something physically happens where my body is reacting to that stress and that, you know, chaos. And I think that's a very relatable thing at this moment in time. But another truth I guess you can pull from that that we can acknowledge is that comedy works. <laughs> like really like the the power of Autumn DeWild and her screenwriting team and her cinematographers and her actors is just like, you know, bringing that comedy to life that I know if I was reading it, I would have to read things like twice over and hear the proper intonation to be able to grasp these jokes or these insults. And a lot of it is body language as well in the film. And I think that like, as a person who maybe struggled grasping that from the literature, seeing it on screen and just already being a person who has an affinity for the comedy of it, like really made this more powerful for me and it made it more digestible I think for others around me to become like a fan of this type of genre people who normally might not have like felt an attachment to it now might be drawn to it because of how funny it is um so I think like that is one of the biggest strengths of this and now we know the truth universally acknowledges like not only can Jane Austen and this genre be funny but you know, this comedy, not it's a highbrow. Comedy is not only for lowbrow, dirty uh, stand-up sets on a grimy little Brooklyn theater. Like, it, it can be on the big screen and it can be a period drama. Something that kind of came up to kind of our point about, yeah, the whole Frank and Jane secret romance is we need to be honest with ourselves and honest with the people around us. And I think that's something that Emma herself feels the consequences of when she tries to play games with people. Like, don't don't play games with people. Like, show up for people that you care about, you know? Um, especially in this time when we're social distancing. Um, show up in ways that are good for public health. And yeah, always like tell people that you love them and be honest and it's okay if that honesty comes out kind of awkward and grotesquely or in the form of a nosebleed because it just means that you're human and yeah that is my truth universally acknowledge beautifully said that's great to finish off we're gonna rate this film on a scale of one to ten piano fortes <laughs> i Last night, you know, I think I was caught up in the nostalgia of seeing it for a second time and just how, like, this film swept me away with the color scheme, with the comedy, with the acting, with just the tour de force that is Autumn to Wild. I will stick to that and I will still give it a 10 out of 10 piano forte. <laughs> I don't know, 10 for me uh, has to really suit me away. I thought it was really great and I really enjoyed watching it. And like you were saying, with, like, the comedic 
comedic bits. I think everything was really on par. It was really like witty, and I I really enjoyed it. But I would probably go with like a eight point five or a nine piano fortes. Um, yeah, I I don't know. I think I had little quips with some of like the plot, but that's not necessarily like the film's fault. Um, that's obviously like the book, and I haven't read the book, which I think I've mentioned. Uh, but I'm gonna go with like eight point five. So it's like a solid film, I think. Um, but I wouldn't go with like ten. What about you? Yeah, no, I would go with an eight point five too. I do kind of wish there had been more to show Emma's having like an. Equal female peer relationship, and that's mostly like you know a fault of the original storyline. But I think there are like angles and adaptations that can like expand on that. I think Clueless did a great job of that, and also I don't know. I would have appreciated a person of color. Just I don't need an explanation. Just throw them in there. I will suspend my disbelief. That's I think that'll become a theme that we can discuss more in depth. What with previews of David Copperfield circulating with Dev Patel. In the protagonist role, which I'm super excited for, but it is an important thing to think about. Is in this era, you know, we've had Hamilton, we have this new David Copperfield. It is maybe perhaps not the most realistic for the time period, but it is still interesting. I I'd say it would be, it would be give us something really interesting and really deep to discuss if we had an Emma. Of color, or if we had a Harriet, or a Jane Fairfax of color, or yeah, exactly, or a Jane Fairfax of color, like people who Emma needs to relate to and maybe struggles to, and part of that could be elevated by the fact that they are racially different. We didn't get that in this adaptation, so I, I understand. I understand the arguments for and against. It's a bit of an interesting question. Well, we will do that yeah. maybe for next week's episode. Of period piece. More content to come from opinions you didn't ask for. Stay tuned. <laughs> You've been listening to Period Piece, a podcast from A37 Productions. We will be back next week for a jaunt into 1880s England as we watch the new Netflix miniseries, The English Game. There will be tea drama and maybe we'll actually get around to talking about soccer see you then